Abraham Lincoln Radio Studio at the George Washington Broadcast Center. Jack Armstrong and Joe Getty. The Armstrong and Getty Show. Hundreds of Cubans who took part in those street protests across the Caribbean nation, waving the flags, chanting freedom, chanting I am not afraid. Well, they're in jail now, and nobody knows where they are. Their families can't speak to them. There are no charges in most cases. Excuse me, they're just being detained by the police. Uh, Cuban police have arrested an estimated 500 demonstrators and activists. Uh, the conditions are nasty. Uh, families are lining up outside detention centers to figure out if their loved ones are there and to deliver clothing, toiletries, and food because there's no guarantee they'll be fed or anything like that. Uh, it is a repressive, totalitarian, socialist regime, and it is absolutely ugly. Uh, let's go ahead with, uh, this is Toulouse Alone. How do you pronounce his name? Alorunipa? Or something like that on CNN. He's one of their go-to panelists. Uh, and clip 25, please, 25. The progressive wing of, of the Democratic Party does not want to go hard uh, against Cuba, against um, some of the things that uh, the Castro regime may have been a part of, in part because there are some Democrats, there are some progressives who, who uh, agree with some of those things. They agree with universal health care. They agree with some of the programs that were in place in a more socialist kind of uh, society. And uh, Joe Biden is trying to push against that. He's essentially trying to say, you know, we do not want our party to head in that direction because he saw what happened in South Florida in 2020. Right. Yeah, they, they, you know, the Democrats got their butts whooped pr- primarily because there are so many Cuban Americans who hear the promises of socialism and say, oh, no, 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 because we know where that goes. Which brings us to the question of socialism and communism and how one leads to the other and whether it has to or not. I am a firm, firm, firm believer that socialism always leads to totalitarianism. It just has to. Because if you're going to have everything organized by the government, by the bureaucrats, the central planners who will manipulate industries and and redistribute income, the rest of it, there are going to be certain numbers of people who say, no, this is unjust. This is wrong. This is immoral. I, I would rather have liberty. And you can't have that or the system doesn't work. You have to beat them into submission to bring them this alleged workers' paradise. If we have to hang a thousand kulaks, that's uh, the famous uh, Lenin letter that was unearthed at some point where they were going around hanging farmers to try to get everybody to uh, go along with socialism. It'll work. We just might have to murder a whole bunch of people to get it to work. Right, and the fantasy is that you'll find human beings so wise and noble and strong that they will gain that control over everything. Because, again, you can't have a centrally planned uh, society where you allow dissent or it falls apart. But, But we're going to find human beings so wise and benevolent and strong that they can be trusted with that sort of enormous power in this system. They won't take more than their fair share. Right. They're, they're, you know, who's the richest person in Venezuela? Hugo Chavez's niece or daughter or somebody or something. I can't remember his girlfriend. Anyway, oh, and two. Yeah, they're not going to funnel the very limited, the increasingly limited uh, goods and services to their friends and cronies. Of course not. Just because it's happened every single time it's been tried doesn't mean it'll happen next time. Which in turn brings us to Orwell, who I'm fascinated by George Orwell. 
I, I would like to quit this stinking dead-end job and, and devote the rest of my life to studying George Orwell and reading everything he ever wrote because he was a dedicated socialist. I don't know if you knew that. And the point of much of his writing, and Jack, feel free to agree, disagree, or, or amend. Uh, the point of much of his writing was showing his so- socialist brethren what the hazards were in their system and how they had to avoid them. George Orwell, just like Vin Scully. And who do you think is the richest person in Venezuela? The daughter of Hugo Chavez. Hello. Anyway, 0-2. We need more of that out of Major League Baseball. (laughs) Amen. Amen. Some good red meat conservatism at the ballpark. How about instead of, you know, you got a little, there are a lot of lulls in baseball. That's what makes a great announcer great. You know, filling in the lulls instead, instead of, you know, uh, by the way, we'd like to remind you that Jim's Ford, Jim's Ford, always there for you when you need a Ford. You know, less of that and more, uh, condemning socialism. <laughs> right. And who do you think is the richest person in Venezuela? The daughter of Hugo Chavez. Hello. Anyway. Owen oh, 2. That one's high. It's going out of play. It's a foul ball. It's a 1 and 2. AOC claims to be a socialist. She's raised $75 million in the last three weeks and is funneling that to her friends and relatives. And here's the pitch. And Guevara steps off the mound to talk to the manager. Uh, you remember Lenin's letter in which he talked about hanging a thousand kulaks. To make socialism work anyway, Owen oh, 2. Remember, anyway. man. Owen oh, 2. <laughs> Remember, a baseball team needs a manager, but an economy doesn't. Anyway, here's to the free market. Here's the pitch. So the, 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 I, I, and, and this could be a lack of understanding hello. of Orwell because, <laughs> hello, uh, because I haven't quit this dead end job to study Orwell, but he, he seems to me to have a remarkable blind spot because he's so brilliant and he foresaw so many things so clearly. And he was such a keen observer of humankind, yet he still thought yeah. central planning could be pulled off. Very confusing to me also. But here's a great, a great quote for him. And I wonder, I wonder if late in his life he began to despair about it. Anyway, he said the only thing for which we can combine, uh, come together, is the underlying ideal of socialism, justice and liberty. But it's hardly strong enough to call this ideal underlying. It's almost completely forgotten. It's been buried beneath layer after layer of doctrinaire priggishness, party squabbles, and half-back progressivism until it's like a diamond hidden under a mountain of dung. The job of socialists is to get it out again. Justice and liberty. Those are the words that have got to ring like a bugle across the world. I'd love to sit down with George, though, and say... How how can you have liberty and socialism in the same place? Yeah, I don't know. And uh, one of the greatest lovers of Orwell, writer, thinker, Christopher Hitchens, who wrote a book about Orwell, Why Orwell Matters. It's a pretty good book. Christopher Hitchens stayed a um, at least a Trotskyist and somewhat of a socialist his entire life, even though he's gotten a chapter in his book in which he went to Cuba, uh, I think in the 60s as a young man, Part of the whole, you know, workers of the world unite went there to see the workers paradise. And uh, he talks about how as soon as he got off the plane, they took his passport and he thought, wait a second, why are you taking my passport? And quickly realized uh, what an what an awful situation Cuba was. And it was not even close to the workers paradise he was hoping for. There was no freedom. There was no freedom of thought. There was no free speech. There was no free writing. There was no nothing. Yeah. Hello. But uh, now, some some of these really smart people continue to believe if it were just implemented properly, it would work. Well, how yeah, is this, that ever going to happen if you believe in human nature? 
if you've spent your life obsessing over this stuff like we have, this is old hat. But if you haven't, it's really it's quite a good metaphor. It's it's referred to as the the horse and rider um, uh, conundrum or or point of view of socialism. Socialists, uh, central planners from AOC to, to Barack Obama to Bernie uh, Bernard Sanders uh, and and others like them. They, Bernard Sanders, the horse <laughs> of socialism. <laughs> Why is that clip so funny? Is it, it's got to be the old time like tone of the guys. What I don't back know. when all announcers sounded like that. Bernard Sanders, Phil Donahue with his giant glasses. Exactly. Bernard Sanders. Anyway, the point of view is that the horse of socialism is a fine horse. We've just had the wrong riders. Mm-hmm. Lenin and Marx and well, Lenin and and, and Trotsky and and, uh, and uh, Stalin, wrong riders. Castro, wrong rider. Hugo Chavez, wrong rider. Wow. They just Mao, Mao, well, every single friggin' one of them was just the wrong writer. But if we can manage it right, we can handle that sort of power and control. And we'll do it right this time. Just trust us. We'll we'll get rid of of inequity. We'll get rid of income inequality. Watch me. We'll get rid of high class and low class. Just trust us. Then they run the horse into the ditch and kill a bunch of people every single damn time. Armstrong and Getty. Jack Armstrong and Joe Getty. I forewarned you. Let's go, Brandon. The Armstrong and Getty Show. So maybe this is as good a place to fit this in as anywhere. I just came across this uh, recently. Um read Mrs. Dalloway by Virginia Woolf. It's one of those books that they make you read in high school or college or something. I don't know if I did or not. If I did, it never made an impact me on me at the time, but at my current age, it did. New York Times has a thing in their book review section where they ask people, what are books you should read before you're 40? What are books you shouldn't read until after you're 40? Which I'd never really considered before, but it's clearly true. Clearly true that there are, uh, there are things that they make you read in college that they have no impact on you because you haven't had the life experience. You haven't had kids. You haven't grown old. You haven't, you haven't, you just haven't had the life experience to get into them. And then there are other books. Like I tried reading some Jack Kerouac at my current age, you know, a few years ago. And it just seems stupid to me. It seems <laughs> self-indulgent stupid. And it was like really deep and meaningful to me when I was like 29. Huh. Just, you know, just where you are yeah. in life, I guess. Yeah, sure. Of but anyway, so this is from Mrs. Dalloway. Now you got to keep in mind that they're talking about people being in their fifties. This was written in 1925, I think. Back then, being in your fifties was more like being in your seventies now. So you need to recognize that. I mean, the whole sixty is the new forty is for real. My mom talks about it all the time. She said when I was young, somebody sixty was in an old folks home. Wow, that's just you know, com- good lord, combination of health attitudes. You know, starting adulthood, you know, you were married and had kids when you were 20, so just a lot of things were different. So excuse the age he is in this. Think more of like a 70-year-old than a 53-year-old. Because I often, I often, I don't want to sound cruel here, but I often see old people and I think, what gets you out of bed in the morning? And I wonder about that for myself, like when I'm that age. What's going to get me out of bed when I'm 75? What 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 do I enjoy? What do I look forward to? I mean, do you spend all? I, I, it doesn't seem like it. Being around my parents or other old people, it doesn't seem like you spend all your time thinking everything sucks now. Everything that's good happened before, and everything sucks in my life now. And people don't do that, but I can't quite understand why. Human they don't connections. Feel that way. 
you know, it's about uh, the people you care about, I guess. Well, this is the, I came across this explanation, I think, in Mrs. Dalloway that I think explains it. And, 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 and I hope this is the direction that it goes for me and it must go for most people. I'll read this best I can. It's about one of the characters in the book. A terrible confession it was, he put on his hat again. But now, at the age of 53, one scarcely needed people anymore. Opposite of what Joe just said. People scarcely needed people anymore. Life itself, every moment of it, every drop of it, here this instant, now in the sun, in Regent's Park, was enough. Too much, indeed. A whole lifetime was too short to bring it out. Now that one had acquired the power, the full flavor, to extract every ounce of pleasure, every shade of meaning, which both were so much more solid than they used to be, and so much less personal. I've read, a, I've watched a couple of long explanations of what that just that paragraph means. And uh, you know, if you're older, maybe you can uh, chime in on the text line uh, whether or not this has been for you. Um, that you reach an age, or it happens gradually over time, I suppose. To where you start to notice the world around you more than you ever did with you taken out of the mix. Because when we're younger, it's all about us. Sure. And by younger, I mean up until like age 70. But uh, it's all about us. Everything is how it affects us. You know, how is this good for me, bad for me, or whatever. And what he's explaining right there is it's not personal anymore. It's just observing the world. I'm just floating around in the world. I'm no longer, it no longer matters to me because most of my life has been lived. And there's just so much richness to the world here once I've extracted myself from it, which is kind of the opposite of what you might think. But Hmm. once you take your own needs and personality and everything out of it and you just observe humans and things and beasts and buildings and traffic and everything like that, that life becomes very rich and very interesting. I find that fascinating. Uh, I hope that that's the experience I have. That would explain to me um, how you can be quite old and still get a lot out of life. That's the first time yeah. I've ever seen explained that way anywhere in fiction or nonfiction. Interesting thought. I used to regularly describe this uh, radio show as a trip to the human zoo. <laughs> right. Maybe just watching the human zoo or uh, the regular zoo with animals or just, just watching the world be what it is. Without the the freaking filter that is self, which is what yes. dominates us through so much of our lives, um, our you know need to be loved, liked, respected, envied, whatever it is that drives us to buy things and do things and strive for this or that. But once that is done, according to this anyway, uh, Virginia Woolf, who you got to remember, killed herself. Um, <laughs> so maybe it wasn't working so well for her. Um, uh, that that's just what you get out of the world. I don't know. Agree or disagree? Any thoughts on that text line? 415-295-KFTC. Gave me something to look forward to. 415. Yeah, I, I, I'm sorry. Go ahead. 415-295-KFTC. I was just going to say I was, I'm, I'm thinking about the don't need people anymore. What, what exactly was that line? He was I, I, walking out of a party and just how, and, and the party was all about, the other stuff we were talking about, self, is all about right. status and who knew who and who was wearing what and who drove what and all that crap that mm-hmm. dominates so much of your life. Yeah. And he had reached yeah. the age where just none of that crap mattered anymore. Yeah, that I absolutely get. And that's not what I was talking about. I was talking about real you know, connections between humans who care about each other and bring each other joy. Mm-hmm. I mean, at the point you don't give a damn about making any more money or a career or to some extent who's in office, depending you know, on the politics of the time. 
Um, yeah, that's interesting. Of course, that's good stuff. Literature, you say. That mm-hmm. author, Virginia Woolf, put heavy rocks in her pockets and walked out into a river when she was in her late 50s. So, Well, I think it's possible to have wisdom and insight and also uh, crushing depression. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I don't think the two are mutually no, exclusive. No, no, absolutely not. She did it on purpose, right? She just didn't oh, forget yeah. they were in her pocket. No, no, she did oh, it she on purpose. She just liked to carry rocks around in her pockets, and she liked to take walks in the ocean. never occurred to her not to do both at once. She left a note for her husband that said, I don't think anybody, any marriage has ever been happier than ours. I'm sorry I'm doing this to you, but I just can't go on anymore and put heavy rocks in her pockets and walk down into a river. Boy, this is a cheery little story you got here. It's a heck of a thing, though, isn't it? Yes. Yes, and it's made me sad. Who comes up with that idea? Thanks for making me sad. You don't have to be sad. You're not going to do it. I know I don't have to be sad. I am sad. Don't tell me how to be. (laughs) Now I'm angry. Don't tell me not to be angry either. That would make me sad again. How about a little transition music, Michael? Transition music. I've never heard this one. It's making me forget what we were talking about, which is the point. <laughs> All right. Uh, is that the tunnel scene from Willy Wonka? That uh, that gave me dread. The back of my neck is sweating. I feel like I'm about to get knifed by a clown. <laughs> I'm sorry, guys. What's, what's happening? What's happening? <laughs> Mannequins are walking. Leave <laughs> <laughs> <Play> again, Michael. <laughs> That's right. Humans. Hey! <laughs> oh, geez. Yeah, that's too much. All too right. much. Hey, hey, stop again. If somebody's half asleep somewhere, they're gonna be they're gonna wet their bed. <laughs> that music was terrifying. <laughs> Armstrong and Getty. From the Abraham Lincoln Radio Studio at the George Washington Broadcast Center. Jack Armstrong and Joe Getty. And now he. Armstrong and Getty. You uh, perhaps have heard us talking about University of Pennsylvania transgender swimmer Leah Thomas, who until about a year ago was Matt Thomas or <coughs> whatever her name was when he was a he. Please was a, do not use gendered I, language I to, the, to address the, everyone. How, how do I tell the story without using gendered language? To, Anyway, <laughs> University of Penn transgender swimmer Leah Thompson Thomas says she's thrilled to be competing on the women's team, but apparently not all of her teammates share her enthusiasm. Two female no, Penn swimmers. No, wait, yeah. that can't that can't be. Everybody's enthusiastic about this. It's well, universally we'll, applauded. We'll get to the petty, uh, 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 jealous, transphobic reasons they're unhappy coming up, Jack. Uh, two female Penn swimmers told sports website Outkick in an anonymous interview that team members are frustrated and upset as they watch Thomas smash records in her first season on the women's team after three years as a men's freestyle standout. And by the by, to be a Division One college swimmer, you've oh, got to yeah. be spectacular. Oh, 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 yeah. You're among the top point zero some percent in the world. Picture this as a female athlete. Said so to one of the swimmers, they feel so discouraged because no matter how much work they put in, they're going to lose. Yeah, because they're swimming against somebody who was a dude until very recently. She said having Thomas on the team casts such a cloud over everything. 
a view sharply at odds with the 22-year-old transgender athlete's upbeat take on her first season in her first interview. I feel confident and good in my swimming and all my personal relationships, Thomas told a podcast. Transitioning has allowed me to be more confident in all those aspects of in my life where I was struggling a lot before I came out. Oh, I'm happy that you're feeling happier. That's great. Who are you people who say, woohoo, that physical dude is trouncing all these physical women? What, yay. Who, who are you? Yeah. Why do you get any joy out of that? Why do you think that's a good thing? Well, and who are you people who don't recognize how absurd and unfair this is? How cruel it is to all the women swimmers? Anyway, uh, the uh, Leah said the 2021-22 season has been incredibly rewarding, citing strong support from her teammates and Penn Swimming and Diving coach Mike Schnurr. Quote, the team has been unbelievably supportive since the beginning, teammates and coaches as well. Mike has been one of my biggest supporters and allies in this process since day one, and I'm very grateful to have that support from him and everybody on the team. I feel very supported, treated like any other member of the women's team. Behind the scenes, however... The teammates told OutKick that the Thomas involvement has stoked major friction on the team. The administration has strongly advised them not to talk to any media about the story. Oh, yeah, I wonder why. Because they might tell the truth. Pretty much every individual, pretty much everyone individually spoken to our coaches about not liking this, said the first swimmer. Our coach just really likes winning. He's like most coaches. I think secretly everybody knows it's the wrong thing. Um and as a colleague of ours tweeted, this is not normal, this is not right. Even if the entire world insists that you say it's normal and right, you have a moral obligation to reject this madness. And if you're new to this story, uh, this Leah Thomas now holds Penn's all-time women's record in the 200 and 500 freestyle. At an invitational uh, a couple of weeks ago, she set a program meet and pool record in the 1650 uh, freestyle Defeating teammate and second place finisher, uh, Anna, the, the long name, by a whopping 38 seconds. How do you beat anybody, even in a long race, by 38 seconds? Yeah. You're better than everybody else by 38 seconds. That's That makes it a joke. That makes the competition a joke. Yeah, indeed, her times in the 200 and free, 500 freestyle this year lead the NCAA, fueling speculation she could make a run at the records held by the, all the great uh, female division champions through the years. So, because you know, to, a dude is swimming. Well, yeah, somebody who's t- till very dude. recently physically a uh, dude. Yeah, I'm not denying the trans thing and the brain and all that, but physically, this is a dude swimming against girls. That's what I about. hope. I hope Leah has a, a happy and rewarding life in every way. The, sure. It's her competing against biological women that is an obscenity. Uh, but, and to echo the tweet I mentioned about, you know, um, uh, you've got to stand up, say this is not normal, this is not right. Um, there are so many of these topics. And we were talking about the whole defund police thing earlier and how San Francisco has made a major, major 180 on this. Portland is starting to as well. We have that story. You know this stuff is crazy. We've been saying it's crazy. You've been saying it's crazy to us. To the extent that you can, you've got to stand up against it and call it out. Now, if you're in the sort of position, you work in academia, you're a low-level instructor, something like that, it would just end your career. You know, you have our sympathy. We get it. But, But those of us who do have a platform to call in a polite 
and 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 decent and kind way that this is just crazy. You got to do it. Friend of mine uh, got to the end of his uh, Marxist uh, so-called anti-racist indoctrination at his corporation, and they asked any comments on it uh, in writing, and he told them exactly what he thought about it in a very measured, polite, reasonable way. He's sticking his neck out. He's taking a chance. Uh, I guess he feels like he can or he felt like he had to because it was just that filthy racist garbage that they're jamming down people's Mm. throats, and he couldn't take it. Um, You know, folks, we have to. Because, and you know, it's like, um, it's like the, 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 the soft on crime policies, the Marxist DAs, the defund the police stuff. The results of those changes, those policies, they're obvious. Anybody with any common sense can see them coming from a hundred miles away. And sure enough, they happen. They're a disaster. Anybody who lets, uh, uh, until very recently, man compete against women in sports of speed, strength, and agility. The absurdity of that is going to be borne out in a big hurry. And, and it always, always is. I guess that's, that's kind of encouraging. But these policies are crazy and we've got to stand <laughs> up against them. Uh, a lot of people texting. I don't remember what we said, but it's University of Pennsylvania, not Penn State. Um, I have you been pen. thinking, I've been thinking since the beginning of all this. That logic will win out. I mean, to me, this is one of those stories uh, that we do where we say, see, everybody believes this, but the media led you to believe that it was like a 50-50 issue, when it's really more like a 90-10 issue. Yeah. And there's lots of them out there. Uh, Abortion, um, uh, anything after first trimester, uh, border, lots of different things. This is one of those clearly. This this one might be like a 98 to 2 issue nationwide. And so I've I've been thinking all along, well this will get stopped in its tracks at some point and the silliness will be over. But it hasn't yet. No, and that's and I should have I should have finished the thought because you make a great point. That's why I'm saying if you can stand up against this sort of stuff, you have to. Because, I mean, like in the uh, the, the uh, anti-racism, Marxist, uh, everybody should hate white people training that is being forced down the throat of such a huge percentage of population, the population in schools, um, in, uh, in corporate uh, you know, training, the rest of it. What percentage of people do you think who, who feel, oh, my God, this is racist, this is horrible, this is un-American, and I hate this? What percentage of those people speak out, do you suppose? A very low one because they're afraid. Sure. And so it's reached such a critical mass now. It's practically everywhere. You know, I was going to bring you up to speed on my dog who has cancer. It is very much like a cancer in that if you let this stuff spread and it achieves a critical mass, the the fifteen percent maybe of people who believe it they yeah, will that, huh? overcome the eighty five percent. Depends on the topic. That? Depends on the topic. Well, on on the idea that biological dudes should be able to compete with biological women and dominate their sport, what percentage of people do you think think that's okay? I gotta believe it's single digits. Uh, yeah, it's it's low. And if you gave several examples like this. Because you can't underestimate how dumb a lot of people are. Okay, <laughs> it just is. It's true. Um, and and if you say you know, they're transgender and they compete, well, they're a woman now. Yeah, that's correct. Well, that's fine. And then you'd have to give them examples where 
Well, here's a guy, a, a, a woman who was a man till very recently beating everybody by 38 seconds, which is like a day in the world of swimming. Um, here's an example that that horrific ex- that mixed martial arts where a former dude just brute a woman beat a woman down brutally. Um, it's, it was hard to terrible. I just saw stills. I would not watch the video. It was so horrible. If you expose people to examples like that and they see how crazy it is, if you inform the the, the British uh, military did an extended study that showed that even after years of hormone therapy, years of it. The former biological dude still had more muscle mass, more bone density, greater mass in general. um, That there is no equalizing that former dude. The more I think of it, this is the way it's going to play out. So nobody pays attention to college swimming, really. And nobody pays attention to high school track or any of the other examples that are out there. It's going to have to be on the great stage of the Olympics. Probably a summer Olympics from here you know, next time or the time after that, where some former dude dominates on the world stage on one of the big races, like the 100-meter, you know, sprint. The fastest woman in the world. That'd be the perfect one. They Uh crown the fastest woman in the world, obliterates all the records, and it's somebody that was a dude up until they were 22 years old. It's going to take something like that for everybody the world say, all right, time out, that's ridiculous. And then... That will be curtailed, and it'll work backwards from there. That'll give everybody the cover to work backwards from that instance down to their high school and everything else. I'll bet that's what happens. Well, it's incredibly frustrating that anybody would need that cover since it's patently absurd when you look at it, but you're right. Well, you, you're some high school administrator. You want to be the one that stands up and says, I'm not going to stand, uh, you know, put up with this transgender dude breaking all our track records? Hey, you're going to lose your career. You're going to bring hate down from around the world. The the trans mafia is going to come after you on Twitter. It's just, yeah, who's going to stand up for that? Well, that's why it's so important that the same stand up whenever we can, once again. Armstrong and Getty. I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. Are you tired of gulping down the lying filth of the mainstream media? Yeah, we are, too. We try to tell you the truth every single day. Gulping down lying filth. Wow. Nobody wants to sound dumb. Our goal is to help you not sound dumb. We'll inform you, and it'll be fun at the same time. You don't have to choose between entertainment and information. Combine them both with the Armstrong and Getty Show. Armstrong and Getty On Demand. Four episodes available every day via the iHeartRadio app or wherever you download your podcasts. This is the Harvard IOP poll showing young Americans are really down on democracy. Some of these numbers are crazy. Uh, you know, sometimes I, I feel like the analysis might be better up front. I believe a lot of the numbers I'm about to hit you with have to do with the fact that we're living in the age of hyperbole, as we've said many times. Young people who are especially uh, prone to taking inputs all the time, constantly on their phones, constantly on social media, um, you know, getting texted and TikToked at and, and tweeted and the rest of it. The age of hyperbole, I think, is is affecting them disproportionately. And, you know, it occurs to me, uh, mid-babble, that they don't have enough life experience to put a lot of stuff into perspective, too. They haven't seen this sort of thing, you know, whatever we're talking about, come and go three times already in their lives. Right. So, you know, it's like, you know, the first time you fall in love is the most in love you've ever been in your life. For the obvious reason. (laughs) So, anyway, keeping that in mind... 
After turning out in record numbers in 2020, young Americans are sounding the alarm, says the polling director. When they look at America, they will soon inherit they see a democracy and climate in peril. And Washington is more interested in confrontation than compromise. Despite this, they seem as determined as ever to fight for the change they seek. According to new data, a majority of young Americans are worried about the state of U.S. democracy, reported feeling depressed and homeless in the last two weeks, and say they are a different person because of the coronavirus pandemic. Wow. So majority reported feeling depressed and hopeless. Are a different person becoming of the pandemic. Boy, you, you got you to gotta try to put yourself back in... You know, time when you were a kid, you know, you know, you remember when the school year seemed like compared to being an adult, the school year seemed like it was four years long every year Um, to, to have an entire year where you were on Zoom and not around everybody. How about you do feel like your entire you've changed completely? Yeah, I can absolutely sympathize with that. Although as long as we're picking nits or splitting hairs, probably a better, uh, better metaphor. Um, if you're really going to. Attempt uh, uh, to understand human beings. You have to differentiate between the pandemic and the policy response to the pandemic. You know, if there's a fire down the street, and and one family decides we really need to emphasize fire safety. We need to make sure everything's fire re- resistant. We need to have uh, fire extinguishers uh, near the kitchen, bathroom, blah blah blah. Uh, and then down the street, another family reacts to the fire by saying. That's it. We're tearing down the house and we're living in a cinder block hovel. Well, you can't a year later say that the effect on the kids living in the cinder block hovel was because of the fire down the street. Makes sense. It was because of the reaction, which it, to my mind has been excessive, illogical, ridiculous, overly politicized, Trump phobic, and a hundred other things. So anyway, moving along, 52% of uh, the 18 to 29 year olds, that's what we're talking about, 18 to 29 year olds, barely adults believe that American democracy is either in trouble or failing. Only 7% view the U.S. as a healthy democracy. We talked about these uh, numbers last week, but there's more. More than a year after the 2020 election that ex-president Donald Trump claimed was fraudulent, nearly half of young Republicans placed the chances of a second civil war at 50% or higher. Whoa! Whoa! Nearly half. Coin flip whether we have another civil war. Holy crap! Right. 32% of Democrats say the same thing, as do 38% of independent voters. We're not having a freaking civil war. Calm down. Houston, we've got a democracy problem. Only 57% of the young people said that it's very important at all that the U.S. is a democracy. Or a constitutional republic with voting. Uh, Only fifth, barely half said it's very important. 7% said it's not very or not at all important. Willing to, well, it's because their Marxist professors have convinced them that they can usher in a worker's utopia, free of uh, white supremacy, etc. Uh, but those are dumb young people and should be quiet. 50% of young Americans say the coronavirus has changed them, with 61% of women saying they have changed, 40% of the guys. Uh, overall, 51% say the pandemic has negatively impacted their lives. Uh, the numbers are exactly the same, Republicans, uh, Democrats, and Independents, interestingly enough. Alarmingly, 51% of young Americans report having felt down, depressed, and hopeless at least several times in the last two weeks, and 25% had thoughts of self-harm. Some of the top issues they cited as impacting impacting their mental health include school or work, personal relationships, economic concerns, blah, blah, blah. Too many numbers. I don't have time. Uh, they're Too not very many optimistic. Numbers. 
I don't have time. Well, you know, who said what and, and all, right. but I want to uh, save time to some of the more interesting things. Uh, uh, Biden's approval rating dropped to 46% among young Americans. It's 75% among young Democrats, which is down 10%, by the way. It's at 39% among independents. It's dropped 14% and 9% among Republicans. Interestingly, though the net number among Republicans is lower, the drops among Democrats, independents, and Republicans are almost the same. And the Surgeon General just gave a speech about the mental health challenges confronting youth in America. That's what we need to keep our eye on around, uh, you know, mental health and Amen with people than, than the Omicron. Absolutely. Final number, nobody likes Kamala Harris. Nobody. <laughs> well, it's a slight exaggeration, but it might as well be nobody. Even her close friends and mother oh. kind of, you know, they can take her or leave her. Oh, so um, last night uh, we were at an event, and uh, it was more or less an open bar, and... Uh, I got my drink on and ended up dancing. First time in might be 20 years. So did somebody ask you to dance? Uh, my beautiful wife did. Okay. You and didn't, I said, you, didn't, uh, you didn't just like run out there on your own like Ricky Gervais in the come office. Come baby. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I was I was a willing participant. Huh. What was, was a, the song? Was it multiple <sighs> songs? Like were you owning the dance floor and you're just out there song after song? or Several. It, it, it began with, I think, Margaritaville. Dancing the margarita? Oh, so you're slow yeah. dancing. Then. And, and then, no. You're no. fast dancing the margarita? Yeah, you get drunk enough. Eh, All right. It doesn't really matter. No. Okay. No. And then they went into the funk, and then it was on. Man. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs>